Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the Story Career Consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, teleseminars, and seminars. And I am very, very excited to have with me as my guest today, Trey Calloway. Trey is currently a co-executive producer on CSI New York. And let me tell you a little bit about Trey. A native of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Trey graduated from the USC School of Cinematic Arts with the prestigious Abraham Polinsky Award for Excellence in Screenwriting. Since then, he has crafted a body of work as impressive as it is diverse. And I'll have to say that is true. My God, the body of work. Wow. Trey penned an adaptation of author Peter Abraham's mystery novel, Lights Out, for Paramount, as well as the romantic comedy, The Thinker, for Universal Pictures. He has scripted Nightingale One, a futuristic thriller for Mandalay Pictures, and wrote the successful horror sequel, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, starring Jennifer Love Hewitt, Freddie Prince Jr., Jack Black, and pop sensation Brandy. Trey also co-wrote an original Western at Columbia Pictures called The Last Word for director John Woo. He penned Missy, a remake of the classic suspense film Play Misty For Me, for Will Smith's Overbrook Pictures at Universal. He worked closely with director Philip Noyce and actor Harrison Ford on the big screen adaptation of Tom Clancy's The Sum of All Fears. And after co-writing the animated comedy Nicholas Cricket for Warner Brothers, Trey also developed an original CG feature for DreamWorks. He co-wrote an original action screenplay set in the world of offshore championship boat race entitled Wet from Intermedia with director Rennie Harlan attached to helm. Trey completed a significant rewrite for the Spiderwick Chronicles starring Nick Nolte at Paramount Pictures. He also penned a remake of the classic suspense thriller The Seventh Victim for RKO Pictures and has completed a rewrite for The Architect, an original espionage thriller for the same studio. Okay, so we covered film now. Now we're going yeah, into we're TV. <laughs> In TV, he was the creator and executive producer of a breakthrough one-hour science fiction series entitled Mercy Point for UPN in partnership with director Tim Burton and Columbia Television. Trey wrote and executive produced Lost in Oz, a darkly comedic pilot based on the wonderful worlds of Oz created by legendary author L.F. L. Frank Baum. And over the past decade, he has penned another 15 original dramatic series pilots, including Phobia, The Branch, and Making Waves for ABC, Tahoe's Search and Rescue for the WB, and a two-hour relaunch of the classic series Quantum Leap for the Sci-Fi Channel. He co-created Witch, an animated teen series which aired on various Disney television outlets worldwide. He penned Fountain of Youth, a high-concept drama for the Cabler ABC family. With comic book impresario Todd McFarlane, Trey wrote the pilot for a new horror anthology series called Twisted Tales at Fox. He completed Cost of Living, a small-town drama produced in association with Fox 21, and also penned The Good Ship, an original ensemble medical drama at... C for the CW Network. Trey is currently a co-EP, as I mentioned, at CSI New York on CBS, where he has just celebrated his 100th episode. For the same network, he recently co-wrote the procedural drama Eyewitness, as well as Syringo, his original, uh, his original Western series pilot, and he is now penning the pilot script for The Searcher, a blue sky procedural for A&E. And just to bring the whole story full circle, Trey is also a professor back at USC School of Cinematic Arts, where his vibrant and varied career first started. 
represented by ICM. And uh, oh, and my and Jamie Mandelbaum, love Jamie. Yeah. I know. Who are you with over there? Uh, Marcy Morris. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah that's a great law firm. Yeah. Um, so wow, this is amazing. No, that was like killing me softly. <laughs> it shouldn't you. be. Uh, no, no. It makes me These feel are old. things to feel very <laughs> proud of. You know, it was so wild. Like when I was doing questions for you, because I thought, oh my god, like where do we begin with this body of work? And and. I mean, first of all, you you've been writing a lot. Well, that's my job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell. I want to start at the beginning. So, um, because first of all, I'm huge, huge fan of your voice. And um, tell me when you were at USC. So, mm. what was the Abraham Polinsky Award? I mean, it had to have been amazing. Well, to... no, you know, it was amazing to me. Right. Certainly, Abraham of Abraham Polanski was. Uh, an incredible man. He was one of the UAC blacklisted uh, screenwriters. Wow. Um, probably as a result, the angriest man I've ever known. Right. But justifiably so. Also right. one of the most talented men I've ever known. Okay. He was um, he was a writer and director, uh, probably most famous for uh, a couple of films, uh, Body and Soul, which is um, uh, an amazing uh, boxing film and uh, that he wrote, and also Force of Evil, which is frequently cited as probably the greatest film noir wow. uh, film of all time. But he was, uh, he, Abe was an amazing guy. He was, um, I, I think of him every time I'm in a meeting, honestly, because... Um, he, <laughs> I don't know whether this is advice uh, that that I that I follow or that I would necessarily recommend anyone else follow. But he um, he had these uh, he had a, he was a very punctual person, uh -huh. and he expected everyone else in the world to be equally punctual. So uh, Abe uh, would say to us when we were students at SC, uh, "When you get out, and I'll spare you the full impersonation, but when you get out of school and you start your career." You're going to go have meetings. And when you have the meetings, huh. you're going to walk into the lobby. You're going to check in with the receptionist. As soon as you check in with the receptionist, you sit down and you check your watch. At five minutes, you begin to shift uncomfortably, maybe clear your throat in the lobby. At 10 minutes, you get up. You walk over to the receptionist. You ask him or her if everything is okay. <laughs> if you're still sitting there at 15 minutes, you get up and you walk the hell out. Wow. Because you are a writer. And if you're passionate enough to sit there and tell a story, they need to be passionate enough to hear what you've got to say. I love it. Right? So I love it. I don't I can't tell you how many times, particularly in the beginning of my career, I would sit in the lobby and I'd be looking at my watch nervously thinking, what would Abe tell me to do? Should it's, I do what Abe minutes. said? I, I, I can't say that I've ever actually walked out. Maybe I've come close a few times, but no, he was uh he was just that kind of a person. He was he was uh that says uh, a lot about his character. It really does, and, yeah. and so the the Polanski Award was uh, was a uh, you know it was a cash award that he underwrote himself, but it was uh, it was to be given to uh, to a student for their senior thesis screenplay in the in the right. writing program at, at USC. And in his words, it was uh, for a screenplay that showed truth and courage and storytelling. And and I don't I don't know if I deserve that uh, then or if I've ever deserved it since, but you it was a great honor. Definitely do. It was a great, great honor. And to, a great uh, way to start. Yeah, no, it definitely, yeah. uh, it, it also, yeah, it had the added benefit of, of getting me some attention. And going, my um, voice is showing on. potential here, mm -hmm. and that's, that's fantastic. Maybe, but definitely a, a great man. How, now, how, what was your first job? In the entertainment business? Well, it, there's two answers to that question, um, and I consider them both to be uh, extremely important. My my first job in, in the entertainment business, technically, was when I was still a student at USC, and I got a job working for a local broadcast promotion firm uh, called Davis Glick Productions, and they promoted... Um, uh, exclusively broadcast promotion for television and, and also theatrical promotion. And uh, so it was a lot of radio and television commercials and theatrical trailers. And my first job, again, while I was still a student, was to go uh, to Davis Glick several times a week. And one of their big clients was a local television station, KTLA, which at the time was not an affiliate of any weblet yet. And, and they billed themselves as your movie station, KTLA, your movie station. Right. And all they did was show old movies. Huh. So my job was to sit and watch old movies and pull audio clips from those movies 
and then use those audio clips to write 30-second radio spots for uh, for those films. Oh, that sounds great. And it, what was fantastic about it, I didn't realize it necessarily yeah. at the time, but what was fantastic about it was, and my family's in advertising, so I'd had experience working in advertising, but never you know, theatrical-related or broadcast promotion. And to be able to sit and watch a movie, and I watched hundreds of movies. I mean, it was like another film school. But I, I, to sit and watch a movie and then distill it to its bare essence, like communicate the story in 30 seconds with maybe three or four lines of dialogue and then some quick clips, was a tremendous experience for me in terms of helping me keep always at least one part of my mind focused on, okay, yeah, here's the story I'm burning to tell, but here's how it should be marketed on the page, beginning with, you know, literally page for page in my work. What am I trying to communicate in the scene? What am I trying to communicate with the story? What's the most effective, uh, brief, concise, compelling way to communicate the message of the story or the scene? So it was very, very, oh, very great useful experience. Training. Yeah. yeah that's so then I, you know, I started my own freelance company after that. I wrote taglines and trailers for movies, you know, so I was that guy who was doing, you know, Home Alone, the family comedy without the family or the mask from zero to hero, that kind of stuff. And writing trailers and films, again, Good. equally valuable experience. So that was one start in the entertainment business uh -huh. for me. Um, but then my real first foray into writing, uh, like many people I'm sure have told you, some variation on this story, um, was because of the Polanski Award at SC, I got the attention of a number of people, but uh, one of them was... Gene Corman, who is the brother of Roger Corman, mm. and who is himself a film and television producer. Yeah. And uh, and Gene had me over to his house, and I sat there by his pool, and he pulled out a folder of articles that he'd collected and said, these are things that I'd be interested in producing. Um, see if anything spurs anything for you interest-wise. And I looked through the folder, and I, I, uh, I, I found an article that that was uh, something I had been interested in in a while about the uh, for a while about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and so I broke an original story from a film called Texas Tea, and I wrote it for Gene, for next to no money, God bless him. But it was a great opportunity, and my my sort of little creative spin on it was uh, I would be first of all happy to write the story for free, but I'm I'm happy to to take a little money for this uh, in exchange for you helping me get an agent. Uh, and not just any agent. I want a good agent. Good. Uh, so if you're happy with the script when it's done, you know, that'll be your part of the bargain. And in fact, that's how it worked out. He hooked me up with my first agent, who was Ron Mardigian, who at the head at the time was the head of Worldwide Lit at William Morris and had been there for, I think he finally retired. That was a good years. starter agent. It was a great start. <laughs> it was a great starter uh, place. And, you know, I, it was... So that was my official first foray into writing. And that's, now, did you ever have to be like a writer's assistant, PA, uh, or did you? I, I will tell you, I, I, particularly when it comes to television, I, I started into this business completely bass-ackward. Um, I'm reminded of this daily when I see how hard our, our, our writing staff and our, you know, our assistants work on, on CSI New York because I literally, the very first pilot I wrote, went to series and I became the showrunner on the series and so I had oh uh, my we, we can talk more about that later but I literally I had no idea what I that. was doing that's amazing so um so, I wondered with 15 yeah I thought, okay with 15 yeah. that means he developed from the beginning it was a completely yeah. backward experience but um but you know Look, I had it to do over again. I would do it no differently. Um, it was an amazing experience. But that's that's how it worked out for me, at least in terms of television. But I, I worked in features for quite a while before, before something hit. Before I got to the television yeah. side of things. Yeah. And now with that, I mean, with the idea of that, thinking back to your first day mm -hmm. on the first show that you sold in the writer's room yeah. versus, say, today mm -hmm. in the writer's room. What would you say along the way have been some of the standout lessons that you've learned? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, again, going back to Mercy Point, uh, there I was writing, you know, running a writer's room with with a group of talented writers who'd already worked on several shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I honestly had no idea what I was doing. I mean, it was one out-of-body experience after another. And if I wasn't having them in the writer's room, I was having them in, you know, in conference rooms at the studio or the network on a, on a daily basis. But just in the writer's room, oh, amazing. I think, I think, um, I think what, I, what, I've, what I've since learned, since I didn't know anything then, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what I've since learned is um, 
the importance of thinking before you speak, right? Um, because you, you realize, and I've certainly since realized a, a million times over, what a, an incredibly collaborative medium television is. It's, what, it's the great joy for it in me, ultimately. Um, and, I, and I think, uh, but you have a lot of talented people there, and they're, they're waiting for you to, to sort of lead the charge. And, um, and they will often follow that charge wherever you've sent them to, to, to run, but you really need to have thought about it first. You really need to, to, uh, to not open your mouth until you know exactly what it is you want to communicate. I think that's great advice. I do. Um, so that's, that's definitely something that, that I've learned. I, I've, I've learned a lot of lessons, which you can... Well, and I think, though, too, like when you look at some of, say, the brand new staff level people working on your show Mm -hmm. um, and you see some mistakes that are made in the room, what would you say some of those mistakes are Uh, that people make that you were just like, God, I wish I wish uh, they knew what I know as far as that. Yeah, I I think, um, well, part of it is uh, uh, knowing knowing when to step up uh-huh. and knowing when to stand back. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think I've seen a lot of new writers come into a room and, and be too timid, you know, mm-hmm. be too afraid to share those ideas. And, and I understand where that's coming from. You know, yeah. you feel like you're surrounded by people who do know what they're doing and have been on the show longer than you have. And, but everyone's wearing a mask. I mean, let's That's be exactly honest. That's <laughs> exactly right. And, and, and everyone in that room is suffering from the same yes, imposter phobia. complex yeah. of some form. In some yeah. form. And so, uh, but what you need to remind yourself of can constantly, and I, I, you know, I share this with my, with my students often at SC, you go in, when you go into a general meeting, let's say as a writer, uh, what you have, even no matter how nervous you may be, no matter how green you may be, you need to remind yourself that if they could write it without you, they would. Right. But they can't. They yeah. need your voice. They need your talent. Understand they need your, your value. And the same yeah. is true even in a writer's room with mm-hmm. a bunch of seasoned, jaded writers who've all been on umpteen shows. Um, you're there because you're a fresh voice. You're mm-hmm. there because you have ideas to contribute. Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid to contribute them. Right. Flip side of that is know when to shut up. Yeah. You know, know when to That's let great. someone else's voice take the stage. Mm-hmm. I, you know, my wife is a comedy writer, and and I know that it can be different in comedy where you know there's a there's a, a competition for who can get the biggest laugh, or you know who can who can pitch the joke the funniest, even though it may be the same joke that was just pitched. I know there's some of that energy That's that happens. A lot of pressure. Right, but it has its own dramatic equivalence too, and right. you know, and and sometimes you know the bully in the room can get you know the idea across whether or not it's the best idea. It just happens to be the one that's most forcefully presented but I think that uh, so yeah sometimes you have to you have to be able to step back and and you also have to play a supportive role in a room um at least I think I I I, uh, I like to hear that. Well, having That's you know, good. look, I'm I'm a neurotic writer just like any of the rest of them mm-hmm. in my own right, and I and I know how much it means to me to have the creative support of a writer or writers in the room, and so you need to give that love back, um, and yes. really keep it about what is the best idea, and if it's someone else's idea, not your own, that's fine. Right. It'll be your idea next time, but yeah. this time, give it your full support if you feel instinctively that that's a great idea. Yeah. Then give that writer and give ego. that idea the full yeah. support. Yeah. Because uh, we all need that. Oh, uh, I think that's great. I do. What would you say was a point in your career? Was it was it early on that you understood and heard your own voice in your writing? Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was seven years old. Really? I was seven years old, and I'll tell you why. I think of this every day. Um, I was in the third grade, and I was growing up in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, and a little, uh, actually a little town outside of Tulsa, a little suburb, Jinx. And I was in my third grade class with Miss George, God rest her soul, who lived to be 100 and just died late wow. last year. But she, um, she uh, encouraged my writing. And, uh, and I was sitting home on a Saturday, and there was a, a CBS interstitial show between cartoons mm-hmm. for kids called In the News. In the news was CBS News produced, and it was just a little. They'd take a fluffy news story, whatever was you know easily digestible by kids, 
And they would sort of cover the story, but there was always a point in each story where there would be some sort of a problem that kids were encouraged to come up with a solve for. So I was watching in the news one Saturday, and there was a story about the Leaning Tower of Pisa and how it was continuing to lean at an alarming rate, and the Italian government was concerned. So, hey, kids, how about you come up with an idea on how to save the Leaning Tower of Pisa and send it to CBS, New York, New York. Oh, my gosh, I love that. So I sit down, I write my little letter, and I... I, I, I came up with a sketch, uh-huh. and my idea, whatever you may think of it now, my idea at the time was we're going to build a visitor center. It's going to be in the same architectural style as the Leaning Tower Pisa, but we're going to butt it up against the leaning side, so it's going to hold it up, and then you can go up in the tower, and when you come down, you can go into the gift shop, and you can buy things. It'll be So this is my idea. I sent it I off like with it. my drawing to CBS New York, New York. I'm sitting in my third grade class a couple months later. There's a knock at the door. Miss George goes to the door. The principal's standing there. There's some sort of intense conversation between the two of them. And then suddenly Miss George comes back in and asks me to follow her. So I go outside. I think I'm in trouble. I don't know what I've done. I step out into the little library area, and there is a camera crew from the local CBS affiliate. And I... They had picked my, somewhere in New York, they had picked my idea, and they sent out the local affiliate to shoot a little follow-up piece with me. And the reason I say it was the time that I, f- I sort of found a voice, not that I haven't, you know, I hope, uh, progressed in my storytelling abilities since age seven, <laughs> although sometimes it's questionable. Um, the, reason I, the reason it was a seminal or important experience for me in terms of my voice is that it was, it was sort of the first time that I realized you could creatively articulate an idea that could inspire people to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And people were out there listening, and you just needed to give them something to listen to and focus right. on. And I, I kid you not, I, every day when I drive onto the Radford lot in Studio City and I pass the CBS Studio Center sign with the iconic CBS eye, part of me is seven years old going through mm-hmm. the gate because mm-hmm. I recognize fully, and I've recognized so many times in particular in CSI New York where we're so blessed to have so many people watch the show for so long right. and the entire franchise. Yeah, it's a great show. Um, I, I never, ever lose sight of the fact that, you know, whatever cockamamie idea I come up with now, I there's a responsibility I have because a couple months from now, there's going to be 10 to 15 million people watching it. Yeah. And uh, it's a really, I never take that responsibility for granted. It's, it's, uh, it's very, very inspiring. So I don't and know. the seven-year-old is still alive in there. I hope I like so. That. Deep uh, down in yeah. there somewhere. <laughs> I like that. So now with 15 pilot ideas, yeah. where would you say your story concepts come from? What, what inspires you? Oh, my gosh. Uh, You know, uh, an infinite variety of things, probably, Jen. I I sort of, probably to the great consternation of my representation, I sort of feel like life's too short to tell the same story over and over again, which is why, you know, as painful as it was for me to listen to, you know, you reading my bio, uh, (laughs) I I think the one thing that I'm sort of perversely proud of is that there's lots of different kinds of things that I've written. Very big variety, and which is an agent's nightmare. Yeah, it is an agent's nightmare. I totally get it. And you yeah. know what? Some of my most successful friends who are writers, you know, for, for the big screen or the small screen are those who have very smartly found that niche and carved it for themselves, you know? Uh, and so I, I envy them. But I I, I I apparently am incapable of, of staying in one. But I think your one... way is the more authentic way because my feeling is if you're a writer, write and yeah. go where your passion is, yeah. not where you have to fit into a niche. So I And it worked for you. <laughs> it's, that's, I mean, it's the only way I know how to do it. But yeah. I also I think what what inspires me to a great deal, regardless of where the story comes from, what genre it may be, uh, when I get excited about a story is when I can literally visualize a bowling ball. And what I mean by this is when I was back in advertising, I, this was an agency I actually worked at back in Tulsa for a summer uh, during college, um, one of their clients was Brunswick, the sporting goods company. Uh-huh. And the creative director called me in one day, and I was junior copywriter, and he said, all right, we need to name a bowling ball. So, you know, go and give me a name for this bowling ball, and I want a lot of choices. So I, you know, I spent a week, and I had like 500 names for bowling balls on a master list. And the very first one on my list was the Rhino. 
and Brunswick chose the Rhino to launch this. So to this day, I can go down the street to my neighborhood bowling alley, and that's I can literally right. pick up a Rhino bowling ball. And it's oh, silly, is... but for me, it became. No, that's pride. It's of well, course. no. What it is is it's uh, what I mean by it is I need to visualize a bowling ball. Meaning, when I have this idea, at some point in the process, right, I need to be able to see it as a as a visceral, tangible, you need to visualize marketable it. Yeah. entity. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't have to start there, but right. for me it needs to end there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so that's why, you know, it's funny because even on CSI New York, I get grief uh, from the other writers. It's become an expected thing in the production side uh, of things. But I, I, in order to start officially envisioning an episode, I, I'm a folder geek, and I have to create a folder with custom artwork on the front of it some kind of photo collage or Photoshop, whatever it is that speaks to the episode that immediately begins for me to make it feel as real as it's going to feel when it airs on Friday nights at 9. So so that's that's what I mean by the bowling ball. I I need to be able to see an idea. But visualization is a huge thing. I mean, did you ever have one of those boards where you put everything that you wanted to see in your life on a board? What are those called? Uh, Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'd have room for all of those things. But yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's the mindset. That's the mindset. And see, I believe in that. Like, I, I'm definitely a believer that if you can see it and you can believe it, you can make it happen. Yeah. So, so I think that's great. It's much more eloquently put than a bowling ball. (laughs) (laughs) No, but we got your message. <laughs> what would you say of the fifteen shows mm. that of the pilots? No. What what was your favorite, and what was the most challenging? Uh, well, okay. Um, I think my favorite would probably have to be my first. It's Mercy Point. You know, I had, I had, I had sold up until that point. I had, like I said, I'd been working exclusively in features mm-hmm. and writing as many writers do writing a lot of movies that nobody ever saw. You know, they were just scripts on people's shelves. And I was paid well, and it was lovely, and not complaining. But uh, I, I had sold an original pitch to Mandalay, the Peter Guber's company, for a film called Nightingale One. And um, and I remember to this day in my, you know, full-bore 15, 20-minute pitch, tap dance at the conference table in front of Peter and all of his execs, uh-huh. the last words out of my mouth were, oh, by the way, this will make a really great TV series. And everyone kind of laughed and Honestly, I don't even—I don't know what I was thinking, even saying it, because I didn't want to. I shouldn't have been off my message for selling it as a film, but I said that. And so then, four drafts later on the feature, when it ultimately went nowhere, one of the executives who had been sitting at that original pitch called me up and said, "You know, you said something at the end of that pitch that kind of stuck with me about it being a good TV show." And I always felt the same way. So I hope you don't mind, but I sent your feature script over to UPN, and they think so too. So they want you to adapt it into oh my gosh. A, a pilot. That's a great story. So. That was the impetus. That was yeah. the inception of Mercy Point, and um, it became this incredible, colorful, beautiful, painful trial by fire. Um, just a complete talk about being thrown into the deep end. I mean, yeah. I, I was paired with uh, a couple of talented writers who sort of helped me get it off the ground, and thank God for that. Uh, but then, through a series of circumstances, just a few weeks into production, you know, suddenly I'm running it. And again, daily out-of-body experiences, no idea what I'm doing. Huge effects budget. You know, it's a 23rd century space station hospital. It was ER in space. It was a large ensemble cast. It was shot in Vancouver. We had these incredible sets. And and I. it was a, this amazing immersion experience into television. You know, we were also on a on a small network that was always sort of struggling to find its identity or yeah. reinvent its identity every yeah. season. We were originally groomed to be a companion piece to Star Trek Voyager. I think if we had been, we probably would still be on the air somewhere. Oops. Right. Um, but I think, uh, you know, that particular season after the upfronts, the affiliates decided they wanted it to be the Young Teen Girl Network. And so suddenly we didn't fit anymore. And, you know, yes. it was just one of those things where we were, I think we got eight episodes in and then we were we were off. Okay. Um, but it was an amazing... Still good first start. You know what? At the end, yeah. all that mattered was it gave me the TV bug like I had never imagined. Oh, that's Because great. just to be that creatively involved in every single aspect of How production. long was it between that and your next job? Uh, television? Yeah. Um, uh, or film. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the crazy thing film? about it, too, was because, again, because of the Nightingale One experience, then I was asked to to uh, come up with a, a sequel for I Know What You Did Last Summer. So 
at the same time I got my first series on the air, I got my first movie produced. That was it was a like, good year. Yeah, it was a good year. It was a, it was a bit crazy. Yeah. It was probably where my hair went <laughs> as I look back on it. But um, but mm. it was uh, it was definitely a, it was a great year. But for television, it definitely gave me that bite. And uh, and so right shortly thereafter, I think, is when I first got brought into, you know, I went into a development cycle right after that and set up, you know, my first pilot or pilots. I can't remember what exactly happened next. But, you know, since then, it was just, it was a series of, them out, uh, of scripts. I, I think when you ask about the challenging, most challenging, I mean, they're all challenging. Yeah. Let's face it. Everyone. Um, I think what was most challenging was probably Lost in Oz, which was the pilot that I produced with Tim Burton and, and my dear, dear friend Michael Cattleman, an amazingly talented director. Um, he is, yeah. Uh, I think uh, it was challenging because, well, first of all, you know, we, we, it, was, it was one of the greatest creative experiences of my career, much less my life, to work with Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. Uh, such a visionary talent, and and but was you know, he a mentor at all? He, no, he was just uh, he was just somebody that I or admired. You just wanted from to afar. be a sponge. I just yeah. wanted to be a sponge. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, we literally had to chase him to New York and right. then London. We worked in London on it for a while. He he was in the middle of I think doing post on Sleepy Hollow and prep on whatever his next thing. Oh like he was gosh. just a, How but amazing. but just to sit in a room with him and you know I I would pitch him an idea and then he would doodle some version of it on a post-it note and hand it to us and. It was just like it was mana from heaven. He's yes. just a, an amazing talent. Uh, but it was very challenging because, uh, you know, I wrote the script. Um, I still get compliments on the script. I, I, I'm still proud of the script. Right. But um, it was Oz the way I envisioned it, the way Tim envisioned it, the way Michael envisioned it. Um, and and Oz is not cheap. Yeah. And you feel you have a great debt that you owe to, you know, everyone from the, the 39 film to even L. Frank Baum and those those amazing books. And, yeah. And so you can't mess up Oz. Yeah. It has to be done right. Yeah. And, and I think we were a little bit ahead of our time. Yeah. In terms of the ability that Did we routinely have. It? Yeah. Well, yes, it was a, yeah. a present-day story, but you right. still wind up in Oz. Yeah. And to create Oz now right. would be much easier in terms of the yeah, visual effects agree. of it all. Yeah, Then uh, much more difficult yeah. and much more expensive. Yeah. And you're working with someone like Tim Burton who, you know, blessedly is used to having many, many, many dollars to work with. Yes. And so to recreate Oz, and this was part of the issue too, was that it was through the syndicated wing at Columbia who were used to even significantly smaller budgets than than scripted stuff. Normally. Right, right. And so it was just a, it was a, it was very challenging in terms of the cost. Oh, that sounds like a challenge. And in terms of the egos involved. So it was yeah. just one of those things well, where Well, and the pressure, of yeah, course, the yeah. pressure. But that, I think those are, those are great stories. Well, I challenging, love that but rewarding. I love that. Well, with that, we're going to take our first break. We are here with Trey Calloway. OEP on M or CSI New York on CBS and we will be right back. This is Jen Grisanti. You're listening to Storywise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. Storywise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. All right, we are back with Trey Calloway. Next up, I want to ask you, with regards to pilots, clearly you are... uh, you have a lot of wisdom in this arena uh, and experience. Um, what advice would you give writers who are writing pilots now? Right, I mean, from when you and I started in the mm-hmm. business many, many years ago, pilots were not the thing that novice writers wrote, right. and now they are. Right. So what, like your students and, and new writers, what, what advice would you have to offer on writing pilots? Well, first of all, stop so I have less competition. That would be, that would be helpful. That would be very helpful. That's honest. I love that. <laughs> there are many other things you could do. Um, uh, no, you know, <clears throat> I would say, uh, again, to get back to the bowling ball of all a little bit, I would say uh, only, be, and I say this because I've made this mistake at least once. Mm-hmm. I won't name which one, but at mm-hmm. least one of those times out of that 15 so far. Um, uh, you 
you want to make sure, obviously, you want to make sure that you are 300% passionate about, you know, what you're writing. But you also need, you need to know in your gut, with every fiber of your being, that this idea will sustain itself mm-hmm. for that 171 episodes that we're now in the middle of breaking at CSI New York. You need to know. Yeah. You need to believe that it's got those legs. Um, and and beyond that, you need to know that you're passionate enough about the story that if you're blessed with that 171 episodes, you're still going to be there at 171 going, okay, what do we got? Um, I like that. Anything less than that, you, you shouldn't be suiting up. Yeah. Because you're doing yourself a grave disservice, but you're also you're going to ultimately let a lot of other people down. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's that's a big piece of advice uh, I, I would offer. Um, that's what people don't realize. I mean, the interesting thing is, like, well, I think there are so many new writers who have these hopes of having your type of experience right. where they sell pilot number one. Right. And and I think you know. What people don't recognize is really your studio is like your bank. And they are Mm -hmm. investing Mm -hmm. millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they don't want to do that with a novice. And, you know, so it it is an interesting thing because I definitely think there are creative ways around it. Mm -hmm. Clearly, they part you partner you up with another showrunner right, right. Um, who can help see your vision. But mm-hmm. it sounds like you that wasn't the case. Well, no, but, it was. Yeah. I, you know, da- uh, initially I was uh, I was put together with David Simpkins who oh, helped great. me. Who yeah. helped me because uh, the feature was markedly different from, from what it became in the pilot. So right. he helped me there. Good. Uh, then he moved on once we got picked up right. uh, to series. He moved on and then I was paired for a brief period of time with Lise Latoff who Right. Had created MacGyver and yeah. Spitfire Grill, a bunch of other things. Um, so he was also able to sort of lend some of his experience and yeah. chops to the process. But then I was sort of off on my own um, to run it into the ground. <laughs> but uh, no, it was um, you know, you definitely – that's another that's another piece of advice I would offer to echo your sentiment, which is, you know, um, stay out of your own way. Yeah. And, and don't don't be afraid to – Look for that person or persons mm-hmm. who can help you realize your vision. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't look at that as a bad thing. It's not. Yeah, it's not. And I remember even you know just with, you know specifically related to CSI New York. I'll never forget my first day on the job there, and Anthony Zyker walked into my office and he said, uh, you know, just a little piece of advice. You know, I, I mean, I've written eighty five hundred of these things at this point, but uh, uh, just so you know, um, you uh, you can't write this show by yourself. So don't try. Oh, I and like I remember that. thinking, sort of in a cocky fashion, yeah, okay. No, I recognize that you're the creator of the franchise, and you know, yeah, you're right. A very you're wealthy, like, yeah, successful right. man. <laughs> but I'm sure I can handle this. And then realizing, you know, a few days into the breaking of my first episode, oh my god, there's no way I can do this by myself. I mean, I could, but it just wouldn't be as good. Well, I would imagine there's a lot of research involved. Well, there's a and, huge amount of yeah. research, and there's just a, it's it's you just need a lot of brains to throw at at those kinds of stories in yeah. particular. So, but it applies to it, again, it applies to pilots. Um, just in that you, yes, you're the visionary, you're the creator, you have this idea, but mm-hmm. don't be afraid to, you know, reach out to those people. I mean, in some cases, obviously, the studio or the network is shoving them down your throat. But yeah. don't be afraid to look for those people who, you know, again, can help yeah. you satisfy that vision. Help yeah, you no, that's good. Now, as far as, and I've never really talked to anybody about this, and I think you're actually my first perfect person to talk to because of your history with writing pilots. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bible, when I was an executive and at the beginning of my career, was this huge monstrous document mm-hmm. and and now I know people are writing pitch documents and very often pitch documents are replacing the Bible right what is your process with this um, you know I've done a little bit of both and certainly some pitch documents are much more detailed than others mm-hmm. uh, depending on the project but um, what are I, some of the things you put in your I, pitch yeah document? I, I you know my typical pitch document will and, and I again I drill this into all my students it's um, it's something that's necessary, I think, for any writer mm-hmm. to to put down on paper uh, a full pitch. Um, 
you you're making a grievous error if you're actually opening up that document and reading from it at any point in my opinion that's good for people to know yeah. do not read from yeah, your pitch no, document yeah no that's that's a yeah. mistake for me uh it serves two pur- three purposes one by writing it down you begin to internalize the story in terms of your ability to verbally tell it mm-hmm. right so get it down on paper read it you know Commit the essence of it to memory. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not interested, and nothing turns people off. I think more than a, you know, we've all been on the phone with the telemarketers who are just reading from a script. Uh, you know, you don't. You want it to be in your own conversational voice, but commit the essence of it to memory. Mm-hmm. That's so. The first, the first reason to do it is write it, put it down, is to internalize it. The second reason to have that pitch document is, um, you know, admittedly, in case of emergency, you'll have it there. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's had a brain fart from time to time. And if, God forbid, you forget all of your characters and you forget that you've got it there in case you need it. Um, my my experience is you really won't need it and, and it's uh, you'll be fine. Um, but the third, I think, uh, perhaps slightly more manipulative reason to have that pitch document uh, is that I think, A, it communicates to the executives in the room that you, you've done your work. Mm-hmm. You've, you, you've already put some thought into this, right? But also because I'm a folder geek and I've got that bowling ball mentality, to me, um, that is the first glimpse they get at the reality of this project. Right. right? It's not just some idea I cooked up in the car on the way over to this meeting. Right. It's already, look, it's already got a logo. It's already got an art design. It is, it's an entity. So you visualize that, I mean, because that's part of your process. I do. Do you do things like add, say, theme? Oh yeah. Well, so oh, it's yeah. to cover the basics. And yeah. in, in in any in any pitch document, uh, I'll start with a ramp. Okay, um, that's my conversational way into a subject matter, right? right? Right. And we all have that small talk at the beginning of any meeting. Um, at some point, though, you need to take control of that conversation mm-hmm. and you may be looking for some creative segue or whatever whatever it takes but at some point you need to conversationally begin to expose them to the world of this concept you're humanizing right it. right you're yeah. humanizing it. Yeah. so that's the ramp so I'll inc- uh, I'll begin with that introductive ramp right um, then I'll uh, then I will cover a basic overview this is the basic log line this is the title the genre the basic setup in three to five sentences maximum it's that very easily digestible understandable right. uh, notion of the idea then i will get into the primary characters um uh, you know since television is such a character driven medium i probably spend the lion's share of any given pitch on those people who Mm -hmm. we're going to tune into every week um but you know again focusing on the brevity of wit or the economy of drama you know those choice words that best describe who it is don't spend 20 minutes talking about each person um then I will give a, a a brief overview of a pilot story, a brief sketch of uh, of the story that does a couple of things. One demonstrates how the show works episodically, so that they realize and recognize it's not simply premise driven. It this can function as its own standalone episode, and you know you can see how it contains that. Um, and you can also see how some of those character dynamics you've spoken about earlier come into play within the story. But again, that's a brief brief, uh, broad strokes view. And then I will always have prepared a half dozen to a dozen uh, episodic ideas. Mm-hmm. It could be as short as two to three sentences, but give you a good sense of how it can continue to work episodically mm-hmm. or how the serialized aspects, if it applies to your particular project, you know, continue in a thread through the story. I have those ready. I don't necessarily pitch them right. until or unless someone asks for them. Okay. Um, then I've got them, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I can, you know, I'll, I'll certainly offer up that I have them, you know. Right, right. Uh, but um, I've got them. Right. Um, usually, if the concept is clean enough um, and and it's got those sort of legs that I was talking about earlier, you know, you can, you can easily visualize it. It does not take a rocket scientist to see how the show works for 150, 170 episodes. Then... I find that any further in-depth phone book-sized series Bible is mm-hmm. overkill at that point. They, yeah, they can. I if you, if you've you. articulated it properly, they can recognize the legs. They in can it. see it. They can see it themselves. Yeah. yeah. No, so. that's great. Thank you. I love that. No, no. Um, with regards, let's jump into your films, and then we'll go into mentors at some point. Mm. You've worked on a number of films, including mm. Lights Out, mm. The Thinker, Nightingale One. I still know what you did last summer, The Sum of All Fears. Mm. 
Tell me about your story process uh, in features versus TV. You know, it's funny. I uh, I used to find features a lot more daunting before I started in television, and I'm not. I don't mean to take off my friends who were, you know, hardcore screenwriters and successful in their own right. But I I think um, it's somewhat of a luxury for me now. Yeah. Having worked in episodic TV for a while, to when you work on a feature and you you actually get to tell a closed end story, yeah. there's something really comforting about that. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, I, I the process for me is essentially the same. You know, I, 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 I yeah, okay. There's only three acts as opposed to four or five or whatever the the, the actual template may be. But um, and you have a little more breathing room in in obviously in 120 pages than you do in in 54. But um. But ultimately, it's it's still about, like I said before, identifying uh, what that overall message is mm-hmm. in the story you're trying to communicate, how you're trying to communicate that message on some level in every scene, mm-hmm. through every character. Again, how do I distill the essence of this idea? Yeah. Regardless of genre, how am I distilling the? How am I best distilling the essence of this idea in that 120 pages I, I have allotted myself? Yeah. Um, but really, beyond that, for me, I find the process very similar, except for the, the, lo- the lonelier aspects yes. of screenwriting. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Which can be great sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there are certain days, I'm sure, in the writer's room where you're dreaming uh, about being a feature writer you know, again. But... You, know what, you know what it is? It's funny, too, because I think what finally sent me screaming uh, to my agent saying, please, God, put me on a writing staff. Right. Uh, was when I was doing a, a production rewrite. I was involved, part of a team working on a production rewrite for Spiderwick Chronicles. And right. my, my one of my dearest friends, Carrie Kirkpatrick, who was the writer of that film, one of the producers as well. He's a he's a very talented writer and director. Right. Um, you know, I was a part of a team that came in to do a, a production rewrite. They had already shot the film, and then they were reshooting scenes in London. So there were standing sets and cast members waiting, and there was a huge amount of pressure right. to deliver a large number of pages in a very short period of time. Wow. And uh, and I think I realized somewhere about halfway through that, right? you know, in the middle of the night, probably in a room by myself, I thought, God, you know, this is really not that much different from pilot writing. And I'm kind of sick of myself. I would really like to get in a room with some I'd other really live people. I feel like a people. team around me right now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, the flip side of that, of course, is there are times when you just can't wait to get away from that team. Yes. And you just want to go back by yourself. And just yeah, you want to hear your own voice after yeah. hearing everybody else's. Yeah, so grass is always You know, but it's interesting that you say that because I work with TV and film writers. Mm-hmm. I would honestly say it's almost half and half. And, and you know, I've definitely had... Uh, more success with my TV writers as far as staffing and selling pilots and winning competitions and all that. Mm-hmm. But for me, there isn't that big a difference. Uh, There's just not. It's the same skill yeah. set. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I look at that and people are like, no, they're ri-. I'm like, no, they're really not. Yeah. I mean, when you go into the basic components of story, other than the close-ended aspect, they're yeah. not that different, not. you know? They're so not. it really is very interesting. Now, of all your film experiences, mm. what was your favorite and why? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a toss-up between two experiences. One, the obvious one, is my first premiere, you know, for, for I Still Know. It was just a great... It was, it was, it was, to be it in was, the audience. It was surreal. It was surreal because, yeah. you know... Look, the primary difference between being a feature writer, generally speaking, the primary difference between being a feature writer and a TV writer is a feature writer is a gun for hire and a TV writer is a decision maker. Yeah. Oh, I like the way you coined that. You know, a gun for hire, which is exactly what I was on I Still Know, you know, I pumped out however many drafts I was required to pump out and then off it went to production and I never, I was not on set one single day. I never had any experience with it until literally the night of the premiere and I was picking up a bottle of champagne at a liquor store and on came a 60 second radio spot with dialogue that I'd written that felt like running into an old cousin that I hadn't seen in years. It was a very, but it's a very exciting experience obviously going to a premiere. Um, But honestly, I think one of my favorite film experiences is related to the same film too, which was I was in the middle of doing uh, a production draft, and uh, and I was at Sony, and uh, it was uh, the pages had to be delivered in the morning, and I worked until I think three thirty, four in the morning, and I finally left, 
and I went to walk out to the Madison Gate, if you're familiar with the Sony lot, mm-hmm. and uh, and I had I had been parked across the street in that big brown pyramid-like building, and I, I walked toward the Madison Gate only to find that the main gates of Sony were closed and locked, and oh my there God. was no security guard right. at that particular gate. So I thought, huh, that's funny. Well, right over there is a courtesy phone, so that shouldn't be a problem. I walked over the courtesy phone, and it was uh, out of service. All right, so what do I do now? There's no one else around. So I begin to walk the entire Sony lot, which is enormous, right? It's an enormous lot. And I'm stopping at every single gate along the way, and there's no one there. So I'm literally locked in the middle of the night in the Sony lot, this historic former MGM lot. (laughs) I finally get all the way down to the Overland Gate, which is probably a solid mile across. I get to the other end. There's a guy there at the guard shack finally, and I say, hey, my car is parked outside the Overland Gate and I or the Madison Gate and I really need to get to it. And he says, "All right, well, just walk back down there and I'll have somebody meet you." I said, "Well, it's a long, long way. Is there like can I borrow can a I golf cart or something? Someone? Can you give me a lift?" He's like, "Well, I can't really leave my shack, but you know, if you want, you can walk outside the studio if you just want to walk." And I'm not, I'm not going to walk down Venice Boulevard with my computer and all my stuff at four in the morning. That's not going to happen. He says, "Yeah, just walk back down there. You know, just wait there and I'll send somebody." So I walk all the way back down. Now, at this point, I'm exhausted and I'm ticked, right? right? So I get all the way back down to the Madison Gate. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. No one's coming. Oh. No one's coming. No one's coming. The courtesy phone I've already established doesn't work. So I literally have to break into the guard shack at or at the Madison Gate and call this guy, get him on the phone finally. And I'm yelling at him at the other end of the lot to send somebody down and let me out. But the point of the whole story is, even though it, sound, it was terrible at the time, I look back on it and I laugh because it was it was the ultimate writer's experience, right? right. The machine it doesn't was. work without your pages. They desperately need the work. Yeah. You complete the work in the middle of the night and then you're immediately you're relegated there. to fifth class citizen, stuck on the lot. No one will help you. You're on your own. It's like home alone, the <laughs> adult version. <laughs> That's exactly right. You have the lot at your fingertips. That's exactly right. That, I'm sad to say, is the lot of the screenwriter. Yeah. Still a great job, but oh, it's... Oh, I think uh, that's great. I love that. I think that's right. great. Um, now, tell me about the rewriting you've done mm-hmm. for projects like The Spiderwick, right. Chronicles, The right. Seventh Victim, and The Architect. Well, The Spiderwick, we talked about a little bit. It was, uh, you know, again, I was, I was, you know, writing on Carrie's coattails and, and happy and proud to be a part of that team. It was a great, it was a great project. It was challenging in many respects, mostly just because of the deadlines involved, but great. Um, uh, the seventh victim is actually not a rewrite. It was a remake of a okay. film uh, okay. from 1948 uh, that I was hired to sort of re reconceive and rewrite. Um, the architect, which I just finished for RKO, is uh, is a rewrite um, and uh, a wonderful, wonderful script. How do you I mean, get the rewrite jobs? Is that just through your agent? You know, is that I, through I think networking? Partially, it's a little bit of both. Right. You know? um, right. And 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 also work tends to beget work. So yes. you know you you've done one and you've you've you haven't uh, you haven't been chased out of the building or had yes. anything breakable thrown at you. And <laughs> chances are, you know, if you've played nicely with others, you're going to get invited to the table again. And I, you know, in the case of the architect, it was I mean it was already a beautiful blueprint. So it was a it was actually really really a great luxury to be able to work on. Is that ever nice hard script. though, like being brought in to rewrite somebody else's words? Like, do you do you do you ever cross paths with the person? Well, yeah, you do sometimes. Yeah, you do. Um, <laughs> you know, I I well, first of all, having been rewritten myself, right? Uh, I you know I I take great pains to yeah. uh, to be respectful in that process. Aww. I know that you know that person or persons have put as much work or more often into it than than I have. Um, and I've been on, like I said, on the other side of it. You know, I think that one of the challenges is beyond listening carefully to your studio or executives about what it is that they're missing or what they're hoping you'll bring to it. One of the challenges is just trying to make sure that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, the idea was good enough for them initially to buy in the first place, mm-hmm. either as a spec or as a pitch or whatever. And so you don't want to just completely. I, I think for me, the most rewarding aspect of working on a rewrite is is the feeling that you have which i would like to think that i have just in this most recent thing the architect is the feeling that you have successfully remodeled a home without raising it 
mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I and, like and, that and, analogy. And, and, and being able to walk away and feel like, wow, okay, there was something good here to begin with, and right. hopefully I've made it better. Yeah. And sometimes it really does. Not that I'm a big proponent of the studio method of you know throwing 18 writers at a script. I think yeah. at a certain point you start going in circles. But I, but I do think that, you know, and this is an experience again I've learned in television. Sometimes that set of fresh eyes is exactly what it needs. Yeah. Um, so what, the first thing that I'll do when I look at a script that I'm going to rewrite is read it and reread it and reread it again and again to sort and know of know it like they know it. Yeah, you know? because I want yeah. to know. I want to have the best notion I can of what they were thinking when yes. they were tr- what they were trying to communicate through those yeah. characters or in that scene. Um, before I set about the business of trying to you know change the message or 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 change the scene. Um, so you know, I mean, it can be challenging, definitely. Yeah. But it's it's I I think when it works well, you, it's when you walk away feeling like, wow, okay, I just actually made something good better. Yeah, I like that. You uh, gave us good insight. Mm-hmm. All right, lastly, so we'll go into uh, a few questions on CSI, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to ask you some general questions, and then we will close up. Um, so you're currently a co-EP on CSI New York. I am. How does the writers' room work on that show? Uh, very comfortably, mm-hmm. very cohesively. It is, as you can imagine, you know, in its eighth season, a very, very well-oiled machine. Um, it's it's one of my favorite things about working on the show is knowing at this point, uh, even after my five years on it, you, I, everyone in the room is well-versed in what everyone else's skill sets are. And we're all you know, uh, great about leaning on those skill sets, you know, oh, you know how to do that well, I know how to do that, you know, so there's a lot of that give and take, which is, um, which is really gratifying. Um, But yeah, I mean, and for the most part, everybody that I'm working with now, I've been working with for a number of years now. There hasn't been a big changeover. There have been a couple here and yeah. there, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but still, uh, generally speaking, a lot okay. of the same cast of characters. Yeah. So there's a comfort level that comes with oh, that. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, that's, that's that's essentially how the the room works. It works it works very well. And and you break story individually or all together you know, as a room. Uh, and then the we'll break them. We'll break them together. You know, there's a there's a blue blue sky period a mm-hmm. few times during the year, mostly at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, where we'll talk about different ideas or notions of ideas that we've had and different character ideas as well. Uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, Pam Visay, our executive producer and showrunner, will take a look at it, uh, at the ideas. Um, and we will, you know, sort of select from there which ones are going to be developed further as episodes and, and where they're going to be placed in the order. And then we'll just get about the business of breaking them. So we'll break them all collectively usually about a week or so uh, worth of break time. And then each one of those ideas will be individually pitched by the writer who's tasked with writing it. Uh, so you, even though you've broken it with the room, then you pitch it back to everyone. Oh, great. Um, and so then you get notes at that process so it's like, from everyone. this is what I heard. Right. So, yeah. Right. So okay. did I get this right? Yes. So I'm pitching it back to you. Yeah. And then uh, – and then once we've got that feedback, then uh, you know there's a there's a, a, a paragraph that's generated. It started years ago with outlines, but I think at this point, you know, there's enough of a comfort level with the network and the studio that a paragraph goes to the studio and the network that sort of gives them a heads up on this idea, which is their first opportunity to vet the idea and say, mm, you can't do that. Uh-huh. We've already done that on Miami, or we've already done that on whatever. Um, oh, I imagine that happens a lot. Well, with you know what? Here's the thing. <laughs> Look, I mean, any show going into its eighth season, yeah. pretty much every idea has been done. But when there's two other shows in the same franchise that have been on longer yeah yeah yeah. nine and a half out of every 10 ideas have been done so that's a big idea mill that's for sure but uh you know then once once you've been cleared for takeoff there then you'll go off you'll do your eight to ten days of writing it um then the the writers get it first for notes once it's been combed over through by or combed through by them then it goes off to the studio and the network and then ultimately then you're off on your production land oh okay so So, that's good insight I'm going now. Uh, let me ask you about politics in the writers' room. Mm. <laughs> How would you characterize uh, for newer writers understanding the politics? You know, I don't get to do it often anymore because you know uh, TV staffs tend to want to keep their writers there at all times. So most of our lunches are on the lot or in the writers' room. So I don't I, I don't get to go often for lunches. But, but one of my favorite things about going out for lunch is how you can sit next to a table full of 
They could be attorneys. They could be uh, medical professionals. They could be used car salesmen, whatever they are. At lunch, everyone's essentially griping and moaning about the same things, the same issues, no matter right. what their business is, right? So right. There's, there's office politics everywhere. So the, the politics are the same in a writer's room. Um, and we kind of covered some of this earlier, but, you know, I, I think you need to – you need to contribute. It's important for you to learn how to contribute ideas that make it better, not simply different. Okay? Not just use up space yeah, to because, hear your voice. Right? Yeah, because, um, you know, look, I think it was William Goldman who said that he, he shied away from giving notes to writers because he could only tell them how he would write it. Right. Um, and that's that's very honest. And you look know? at him now. <laughs> look at him now, yeah. So we should all follow him. Yes. But, but truthfully, in a writer's room, a lot of that same activity happens and that you will have – uh, particularly if it's a big room. You right. know? Sometimes it's a little more efficient when it's a smaller room, but when there's nine or ten people in a room, everybody has a different way that they would execute the same story. Uh-huh. Right? So I think it becomes important for you then at that point to, in addition to observing the hierarchy which already exists, you know, which yes. is important in any company, whatever you may do, um, you, you also need to remember specifically that the task here is helping that writer realize this story in the most effective way yeah not necessarily in the way you would choose yeah to write it because that can be drastically different from that writer's voice yeah so like we were talking about earlier in terms of staying out of your own way or you know if you're writing a pilot if you're charged with finding people who can help you realize that vision part of your job in a writer's room is to help that writer tasked with that script realize his or her vision I love not to that. help them realize your vision for not it. to piss all over it yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you look there are yeah. times when that's important to do yes too, exactly when you need to step yeah, in and yeah, do that yeah. yeah that's an uncomfortable part of the job i would imagine but yeah, but yeah yeah generally be just done. be cognizant of how are you making it better or are you making it different yeah so ah i like that i like it all right so before we get on to the last advice mm. question i have something that's off script here okay, so good uh <laughs> What would you say? It's boxers, by the way. Uh, it's what? Boxers. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is something you fear the most in writing? Oh, God. Uh, okay, well, it's two things. One, uh, it's that imposter complex, mm-hmm. right? Uh, oh, my God, they're going to see through me. They're going to know that I, I haven't really fully conceived this idea. They... Or they're going to see that, you know, I'm not sure myself where the fourth act goes or how, you know, I don't have all the ducks in the row or all the I's are dotted, T's crossed. Um, there's that. There's that. There's also the, um, just the fear of sitting down before the blank page. Mm-hmm. You know, even after you've broken it in a room and you've pitched it back to them and you've been cleared for takeoff at the studio and the network, as much as I enjoy writing, ultimately, you know, again, to quote another great writer, Dorothy Parker, it's, I, you know, I'm more enjoyed, I enjoy having written yes. more than actually, you know, it's, 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 it's never, I keep thinking it's going to be easier, but it's still to me no less daunting to sit down the very first time and know, oh my God, I've got to generate 54 more pages of this. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, so that's a little scary if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Do you know do you know what's interesting about that though? I had this conversation with a writer today mm-hmm. who admitted his social phobia of like going to one of my drink nights that has like 200 writers at it. <laughs> He's he admitted that's his a lot social of ph- I know. <laughs> he admitted his social phobia because he said he never feel because he feels that he won't be comfortable there because he hasn't been produced yet. And um, I said, you know, if that's your fear, I yeah. said, what you have to keep in mind right. is the thread that the entire room yeah. has in common yes. is you all sit before a blank page. That's exactly, exactly. And right. that unifies you, no uh, matter it, where you're at in the not, process. Not only that, but we have all at one time or another been unproduced. Yes. Right. Yep. So, and we yep. all got here somehow. Yes. And usually, it's through more than anything else. I mean, yes, talent is important and timing is important, but yep. more than anything else, it's persistence. Yes. It's a persistence game. See, that's oh god, I feel like there was uh, oh wasn't was I'm trying to think was it Ray Bradbury that mm. was on writing persistently? Oh mm. my god, there's a great video on YouTube. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, it's amazing. Mm. Um. So, okay, well, you actually kind of answer that. So mm. with your last question, 
any great gold nuggets um, that maybe we haven't covered that you can think of um, for writers? Uh, you know, I think um, I, I, I think and maybe this sounds you know a bit Pollyanna-ish. I'm sure that some of my fellow writers at CSI would probably throw things at me right now, <laughs> but I, I I I think it's really important to approach writing, whether it's on your own or especially if it's in a group of writers and you're a part of a writer's room, to put as much positive energy into your work as possible. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, I've never had anyone say that. I like well, that. Well, my father yeah. always says, if you'll forgive the expression, that life's too short to work with assholes. And I, and mm -hmm. I think it applies to, to you as well. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think... Again, I, I don't know, all these quotes are coming out, but I, it, you know, was it, was it Maya Angelou's who had the quote about you know, people don't remember what you said or what you did. They remember the way you make yes, them feel. You're right. right? Yes, I, I've I, used that I one. I think that is a, a, of tremendous importance, particularly in a collaborative setting like a writer's room. Yeah. Um, I really, really believe in leading with the positive. Yeah. Um, you know, those are sort of my, like my three, uh, for me, the three important ingredients of being a showrunner are, are, uh, um, know in encouragement and delegation and momentum mm -hmm. right and but the encouragement is Excellent. the first most important one mm -hmm. um and i remember i had a god i had a soccer coach when i was a kid who used to who used to pull you aside and say uh you know trey let me give you a sandwich and what he meant was <laughs> he, he would he would he would he would critique you you know you could have run a little faster that ball during the third quarter then he would give you a compliment. But that, that goal attempt you had during the first quarter, that was amazing. And if I could get everyone on the team to do that, it would be fantastic. We'd be a great team. Then came the last critique. What I would like you to do then in the fourth quarter is try and do this a little harder. Try and do that, you know. And, and, uh, and so that was a sandwich. Right? Yes. And, and I feel like it's, it's equally important, maybe even more important in a, in a writer's room or in a writing scenario where you, if you're not giving someone else a sandwich, you should be giving yourself a sandwich, mm -hmm. right? You should be looking at the, what you're writing and going, God, this scene could be better. But man, that scene that I did before this is awesome. So if I can just get this scene to live up to that level of quality, then I'm going to be accomplishing what I need to accomplish, right? Right. Um, so yeah, sandwiches. I love that. Remember to give yourself a sandwich. <laughs> that is awesome, Trey. Thank you. Uh, that yeah. is excellent. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us this evening. I know my listeners are going to love this podcast. You gave us so much valuable information and very excited for you about everything your future holds with The Searcher on A&E and, and uh, with, with uh, CSI New York and seeing where, where everything goes with that. And then I'm sure you've got films. Uh, happening yeah. as well so embrace the gift thank you very much yes. I never take it for granted but I really really appreciate the, the opportunity it. to talk with you you got it my pleasure this is Jen Grisanti with Jen Grisanti Consultancy and we are out with Trey Calloway uh, co-EP on CSI New York thank you so much for joining us thank you You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. This podcast was recorded at the studios of Icebox Logic.